Welcome, everyone, to the New Books Network. This is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert. Thanks for joining us. We're very lucky today because we have Dr. David Courtright as a guest. David is a historian. He studies drug use, the history of drug policy, as well as the history of medicine and public health. He's the author of Addicts Who Survived, an Oral History of Narcotic Use in America Before 1965. He's the author of Dark Paradise, A History of Opiate Addiction in America. And he's also written Forces of Habit, Drugs and the Making of the Modern World. You might have heard David on NPR recently, or on the Dr. Drew Show. That's because he's written another marvelous book called The Age of Addiction, How Bad Habits Become Big Business. It's a sprawling and insightful work. It's lively and engaging. Before uh, we really do a deep dive on the age of addiction, I wanted to talk through some of the steps that brought you to this point. So I guess in other words, can you share some of the backstory of the book or how you arrived at this topic? I wanted to write a sequel to two books. Uh, One was Forces of Habit, My Global History of Psychoactive Drug Use, Commerce and Regulation. And even as I was writing that book, I realized that the story of drug history was part of a larger story of brain reward, and no one had really written the history of brain reward. No one had done a global history of pleasure, vice, and addiction. And so I I, I wanted to follow up. Uh, In a sense, in writing about drugs, I'd written about the tip of the iceberg. Admittedly, it was a sharp tip, but there was still the iceberg. And uh, I also wanted to write a sequel to a book that I and, and many other historians admire greatly, and that's the the work of the late John Burnham, a book called Bad Habits, Drinking, Smoking, Taking Drugs, Gambling, Sexual Misbehavior, and Swearing in American History. Um, the American part is significant. He concentrated on the United States, and I wanted to do world history. Also, Burnham published back in 1993, uh, which is before digital technology became a commercial big deal and and also incidentally greatly expanded the universe of vice and addiction. So I thought, boy, it would really be a good idea to to take Burnham, which is just a marvelous book, and to globalize it and to bring the story down to the present. So that's a really key point. You've broadened Burnham and you've tried to write a world history and your book spans addiction across countries and it's not a straightforward uh, analysis of opioids or booze or gambling, it brings them all together. And so you're really commuting this, this broad story. So what's, what's one of the most important things uh, for readers to take away from this broad story? That addiction has become more diverse and widespread. And this happened deliberately and to maximize profits in licit enterprises, not just illicit enterprises. And I might add that it I'm not the only person in the world to have this insight. I mean, the, the rest of the, the scientific world is falling all over itself with, with, with this new emphasis on behavioral addictions. So I wanted to take a look at that from an historical point of view. Well, speaking of the scientific world, I was talking to a psychiatrist friend the other day uh, at a conference, and I mentioned uh, this concept of yours, uh, limbic capitalism. So can you just say a bit more about this? Well, limit capitalism is my shorthand for how global industries, often with the help of complicit governments and criminal organizations, have encouraged excessive consumption and addiction. 
And I'm sure your, your psychiatrist friend knew that by referring to the limbic region of the brain, I was referring to the part of the brain that's responsible for pleasure, motivation, long-term memory, and other survival functions that are linked to the emotions. Basically, you need your limbic system. But paradoxically, the same neural pathways make possible profits from habitual behaviors that work against survival. In a nutshell, limbic capitalism hurts us by undermining our appetite control. That's, that's the, the heart of the matter. And when I say hurts us, uh, what I really mean is that limbic capitalism is the number one problem for global public health. Nothing else comes close. Uh, for every premature death due to homicide or war-related violence, there are now 30 premature deaths. This is based on WHO data. There are now 30 premature deaths from unhealthful practices like smoking or overeating or distracted driving. So it's not even close. It's simply incredible. It, it's just amazing. And so this term limbic capitalism is something that, that you created and you've worked on for a number of years. I coined the term. Yes, that's right. And in fact, um, there was a debate at the press as to whether the book should be called Limbic Capitalism. It's the main title. And uh, I'm told by the editors that they haven't had a, uh, an internal fight like this in a long time. And, and the problem was that people who understand neuroanatomy, even the rudiments of neuroanatomy, get the title Limbic Capitalism in about a nanosecond. But people who are not conversant with the word are puzzled. And if you're writing a scholarly trade book, you don't want a prospective reader to be puzzled. So in the end, the age of addiction won out. And it's a great title. I'd say both are great titles. And so you're spoiled for choice. I suppose it raises a question for me. Um, you've written a, a trade book, uh, a very good trade book. And I, I, right off the top, I said it's lively and uh, it's super engaging. I, one of the questions that occurred to me when I was reading it is, um, so it's not, I mean, this matters hugely, obviously, but I mean, how do you get the message across? How, you've been, how have you been working as a historian to you know, help showcase this term limbic capitalism, to spread the word? Well, uh, it, part of it has to do with your strategy for writing the book. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the scholarly monograph. And in fact, my first book, Dark Paradise, was a very technical study of the history of narcotic addiction in America. Lots of statistics and tables and diagrams and all the rest. Um, but at some point, you want to go beyond that and you want to try to reach a larger audience. And in my case, that, that point was in mid-career when I figured out how you can combine scholarly rigor with the trade book format. And, and that's that's what I started doing in my later books. So you've moved, I guess, a little bit away from sort of technical studies with uh, all sorts of charts and so on. But can you sketch a bit more for uh, listeners some of the research uh, that went into this book? Do you have any interesting anecdotes? Oh, sure. Um, well, the, the um, well, first, let me let me try to give our listeners a, a more of a sense of the the narrative trajectory. Yeah. So, the, the book is, the hardest thing about the book was to figure out how pleasure, vice, and addiction were connected. Those are, those are different things, but they're related things. And essentially, vice is a subset of pleasure, and in most cases, addiction is a subset of vice. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you get an expansion of the one, it, as, as the, the, the world's pleasure opportunities multiplied through blending, through refinement, through, through technological enhancement of one kind or another, um, the universes of vice and addiction also and inevitably expanded. And eventually they expanded by design because entrepreneurs realize that you want to be in a in a market where a very few consumers are contributing 80% of your profits. That's, that's the way almost all addictive products work. Uh, alcohol is, is a classic example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, they also came to realize that the way you recruit new users and make your business grow is by targeting young people because young people who start consuming psychoactive substances or who start uh, engaging in potentially addictive behaviors, uh, not least of which is, say, heavy use of social media, um, they become the the heaviest consumers later on. They become essentially lifetime customers. Um, It's almost like you're buying a human annuity if you can get a person to embark on these habits at an early age. Um, Put another way, addiction is a form of pathological learning. And this is the story of how entrepreneurs figured out how to design pathological learning. Addiction was always there, but it, it became, it was scaled up. It became weaponized. It became intentional. Uh, and critically, it, it cut across more and more activities. When I first started doing my research back in the mid-1970s, if you use the word addiction, everyone thought of drug addiction, and more particularly, they thought of heroin addiction, at least in the United States. They, that's, that's what the image that came to mind was of a junkie. Now, when you use the word addiction, people think about sugar addiction, food addiction, gambling addiction, porn addiction, social media addiction. All, there are all kinds of addictions. So, so addiction has, has clearly proliferated, and I wanted to tell the story of, of, of how and why and when that happened. Um, how I told the story was through a combination of good old-fashioned archival research, especially in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book, which deal with what I call anti-vice activism and pro-vice activism. Mm. Uh, One of the things any drug historian will tell you is, or for that matter, any historian of of, of vice and addiction, is that there was a huge reform wave in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And the people who were in favor of alcohol prohibition were also in favor of suppressing prostitution and gambling and pornography. And and so there was was this broad anti-vice front. And it wasn't just in Western cultures. It wasn't just a Protestant evangelical phenomenon. It was a worldwide phenomenon. It's extraordinarily well documented. However, it failed. Uh, It failed for reasons of internal division. It, It failed because it met corporate resistance. It failed uh, because, frankly, governments were ambivalent Mm. about anti-vice activism. On the one hand, there were social costs and and public health threats associated with commercialized vice. On the other hand, they could make a lot of money off of it. So that's, that's that's the dilemma that governments face. And then 
that was followed up by this massive campaign in the mid-20th century, uh, which I call pro-vice activism, which was to essentially commercially mainstream many things that had been relegated to the margins of society as disreputable vices by the Victorians. Mm. And the archives there are rich. Um, the rest of the book is largely based either on technical medical literature or on uh, historical monographs, but, but most of the, the deep probing of the archives went into the, the 19th and the, the first, say, the first three quarters of the 20th century. Wow. I mean, this idea of pro-vice activism and uh, intentionality to, to uh, create addiction, for lack of a better way of putting it, is, is just really stark, I think, for people who aren't initiated for in, in this sort of uh, history. Are there a couple of examples that you thought really jumped out at you and might jump out at, at listeners and, and just the general public? Well, a classic example is machine gambling. Uh, people, people have always gambled, and there have always been compulsive gamblers. But it's, it's become clear in the last 30 or 40 years that there are people who are designing uh, machines, typically digital slot machines uh, or, or video poker games, which are especially seductive. And, and by the way, these machines are not just about gambling. The, uh, uh, the machines um, have soundtracks. They're, they're very consumer-friendly soundtracks. They'll use familiar television programming tunes or, uh, or, or pleasing colors, or, or they'll resemble um, appliances that, that people are familiar with. There, there are all kinds of ways that uh, designers make people comfortable with these machines, and then they become very good at using these machines, and then they receive rapid reinforcement from these machines, and um, before long, they're spending a lot of time on these machines. And, and by the way, addiction is, is sort of the end point of a spectrum. I don't, I don't mean to say that everyone who, who uses a video poker game or even everyone who spends a fair amount of time on a video poker game is necessarily an addict. But at some point, when the behavior becomes compulsive and cue-driven and personally ruinous, um, that's an addiction. It's reasonable to describe that as an addiction. And gambling, by the way, is one of the most ruinous addictions. It has very severe financial consequences and also a relatively high suicide rate. It's a really important you just made, uh, a really important point you just made uh, about the spectrum of addiction. And uh, it's, uh, there's not uh, sort of one size fits all in the book. And, no, and, if I, and if I could add something to that, there's one of the, the concepts that I develop in the book. Uh, this would also make a terrible title, but but I'm, I'm, drawn, I'm drawn to the idea of hormesis, which is the biological principle that in nature, there are many substances that are good for you in small doses, but bad for you in high doses. So if you're suffering from congestive heart failure, uh, you might want to take digitalis and have the, the physician titrate it up to the, the most beneficial dose. But if you go beyond that, you're in big trouble. And, and that's, that's true of a lot of things. So, so 
playing cards or gambling in moderation, no big deal. Doing it all the time, it's a big deal. Social media, occasionally, no big deal. Lose yourself in the world of social media, your grades will suffer, um, your your marital prospects will diminish. <laughs> there, there are a lot. There are a lot of consequences for digital addiction. Now, they're not necessarily uh, life-threatening consequences like the ones that you experience, the risk factors you experience if you're a heavy smoker, but they can still um, distort your life in ways that are harmful. So what should gamers, uh, video gamers, know about this book? Well, I hope that it will, will help not only video gamers, but, but everyone to develop a sort of healthy cynicism uh, about the reality that uh, on the other side of the screen, there are a thousand people who are a lot smarter than you are, and they are trying to keep your eyeballs glued to that screen. And you may think that you can outfox them, but boy, you know, good luck with that if, if, if you keep playing away. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really frightening. This was a disturbing book to write. I, I, uh, it was also a disturbing book to write as a college professor, because of course I was teaching as I was writing the book. Right. And I saw the toll that digital distractions and digital addictions were taking among my own students, even as I was writing about this as, as an historical and an economic proposition. I mean, there's always the danger of getting into this uh, mindset of, of, you know, fuddy-duddy and, and the kids are, are doing things they shouldn't be doing and, uh, you, know, you know, kind of suggesting that, you know, there were halcyon days when, when things were, were, were far better and cleaner and so on and so forth. But I think what the book did for me is clarify that there are some real significant dangers in the way capitalism has marshaled neuroscience. And, and I just wondering if you had something to say on, on, about this. Well, the, the last chapter does address the question of, of, of what we can do about it. And uh, there are some strategies. I mean, one looks at the, the history of public health efforts against combustible cigarettes, for example, and, and, and you can see cause for hope in that. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that ridicule is an extremely powerful weapon to use as, as a sort of public health counter to limbic capitalism. Uh, not just ridicule, but it occurs to me also that shaming, uh, consider the fortunes of the Sackler family before and after the OxyContin scandal. So, so there, are, there are counters to this. We're not hopeless in the face of this, but I will say that your reaction to the book uh, is universal. I shared the manuscript with half a dozen colleagues and friends before sending it off to the press. And believe me, no one said fuddy-duddy. Books, books scared the pants off people. Yep. And in fact, one of the most common criticisms was that uh, I hadn't taken what I had written seriously enough. It was, mm. uh, it was not enough to name the system. It was not enough to come up with the concept of limbic capitalism. I really needed to tackle the, the policy issues and, and the appropriate policy responses much more than I had. And, and I felt ambivalent about that because as an historian, it, it, that's not our first job. Right. I mean, you know, we, we let the cards fall where they may, and occasionally we, we, we do have 
thoughts to offer on policy, but that's not the primary purpose. Um, nonetheless, I, I did turn to possible ways to address the crisis in the last chapter of the book, which I called Against Excess, which is a, a nod to Mark Kleiman's classic book on drug policy of the same title. So chapter three uh, has a wonderful uh, title, Liberating Enslaving Pleasures. And it seems to be a paradox. And so I was hoping that you could explain this uh, for our listeners. Well, uh, many writers, Aldous Huxley, uh, the historian Daniel Lord Smale, have pointed out that there's a liberating aspect to the, the food drug revolution of the, the early modern period. And by, by food drugs, I'm, I'm referring to substances uh, like tobacco, like chocolate, uh, like uh, uh, alcoholic spirits, uh, which became much more abundant in early modern Europe. Uh, these, these were things that, that contemporaries saw as, as having both nutritional properties, but also medicinal properties. So, so they were not necessarily clearly sorted into the category of a food or a drug, which is the way we tend to think of these things today. And given the, the sheer misery of, of the mass of humanity, the, these things were welcome. I mean, this, this is a point I make in Forces of Habit. Uh, people who were living through the general crisis of the 17th century were people who could use a smoke and a drink. Uh, so, so there's, there's a liberating factor. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, um, there's also an addictive aspect. And even though the word addiction was not generally used in the, say, the late 16th, the 17th, or the, the 18th century, there were plenty of metaphors. And, and several of those metaphors involved slavery or, 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 or some kind of uh, capture of the individual who had become habituated to these, these food drugs that were entering world commerce. So smokers, tobacco smokers, were likened to those who had a hook in their hearts. Or compulsive gamblers and dram drinkers were said to be like slaves, or even more specifically, like African slaves. Um, there was a saying... It's not the man who eats the opium. It's the opium that eats the man. And you, there, there's clearly a concept of addiction. But before the, 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 the term became common in the 20th century, before the term became medicalized, before we had the brain disease model of addiction, people plainly had a concept of addiction. And, and so um, the, the middle chapters of the book are essentially... Uh, the story of a trade-off. Uh, it, it, in many ways, it, it was a great thing that human beings developed a whole new repertoire of pleasures, even if it did expand the amount of vice and addiction. I mean, that, that, there's nothing wrong with pleasure, and there's nothing puritanical about the book. The problem is that people also figured out how to refine and blend and otherwise intensify these pleasures in ways that greatly increased brain reward and which led some people to the destructive state that we call addiction. Now, I suppose you could argue that maybe the, the addiction of the few 
was the price that we had to pay for the the enjoyment of the many, and that that was a, that was a reasonable price to pay in the early modern era. I, I don't know, but uh, in any event, uh, the price that we're paying has become heavier and heavier as as these addictive products have become um, commercialized, as they've become ever more cleverly designed, and as the number of different forms of addiction have multiplied. So, hence the title of the book, The Age of Addiction. The genie is out of the bottle, and the genie is getting much bigger. David, one of the chapters, chapter six, uh, centers on food addictions, which is just innately fascinating to me. So can you tell us a bit more about this? Sure. Uh, this notion of, of food addiction has has become a really big deal, both in the in, in the um, in the scientific world and, and and in the broader public in the last mm, ten or so years. It goes back to a major conference at Yale back in two thousand and seven. But even before two thousand and seven, there were people who were working on this, and everyone knows that obesity is a serious public health problem. Um, Everyone also knows that obesity has many causes, but, but many researchers have begun to suspect that one of the causes is addiction. That, that is to say that in a certain percentage, probably a quarter of, uh, of people who are seriously obese, there, it, it's, it's more than just living in a food desert or insufficient exercise or, or, or one of the other classic causes of addiction. There, there's actually a neurochemical change that leads to compulsive behavior. There are people who are preoccupied with food. They think about food all day long. They, they, they dream about menus. They, they, it's their primary form of reward. Um, and they get to the point where they, they're making... They're making themselves miserable, and they're also ruining their health. Uh, that's an addiction. And this insight that food, especially hyperpalatable food that's loaded with sugar and salt and fat, about which Michael Moss has, has written so eloquently, uh, food is a drug. And, and this, this insight came along at the time that people at NIDA and other researchers, uh, NIDA being the National Institute on Drug Abuse, people at NIDA and other researchers were gaining access to, to neuroimaging studies, and they were, they were discovering that there were certain uh, uh, neurochemical commonalities among the addictions. And sure enough, uh, food addiction falls into this category. And, and, and so it's it's not just that, oh, we found a new form of addiction. It's that the processes that go into the creation of food addiction are in many ways similar to uh, the processes that go into heroin addiction or cocaine addiction or alcoholism. There's this similar underlying uh, neurochemistry. And that was really exciting to people in the research community who realized that, that what they were onto was an understanding of, at, at least at the cellular and molecular level, uh, of the causes of pathological learning, which in turn were accounting for much of the preventable morbidity and mortality in the world. That was a big discovery. And, and so what I do in the book is I, I interweave the story of the brain disease model 
and the story of the discovery of food addiction and how those two things reinforced one another. And then I talk about how the food industry itself has become a major contributor to food addiction uh, by designing these hyperpalatable foods that are essentially designed to deliver brain reward as much or more than simple nutrition. In the final chapter of your book, David, it's called Against Excess. You lay out some thoughts and uh, some recommendations for the future. I wonder if you can just sketch for us uh, some of those ideas. Prior to the, the last chapter, there's a chapter on pro-vice activism and, and the triumph of commercialized vice in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries. There's a chapter, it's just mentioned, on food addiction. There's a chapter on digital addictions, which is, is the one that really resonates with most people. And as I was writing this book, people would come up to me and they'd ask me what I was doing. And I'd say, well, I'm writing about the spread of addictions. And they'd, they'd invariably they would say to me you've got to talk about kids and their cell phones uh that that was the universal response for sure and and so um there so by by the end of the seventh chapter um the future looks grim so i felt compelled to uh, consider what might be the the public health rejoinders and the and, and and the policy options available to us and and the they're there. I mean, taxation is one of the things that I think is is an underutilized tool. Um, if you look at a psychoactive commodity like alcohol, I think that in most parts of the world, and certainly in the United States, it's grossly undertaxed. Now, you have to be careful here because you don't want to tax a thing so much that it becomes a de facto prohibition and then you get the evils of the black market and so on. You have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's pretty clear that if governments um, are, to use Mark Kleiman's phrase, if governments will only grudgingly tolerate certain things, if they will ban advertising, if they will uh, levy relatively heavy taxes, um, they can discourage consumption, and in particular, underage consumption. That's really a, a, an important key. If you can keep kids from using these things, then you're going to prevent addiction down the road because that's that's the age of greatest susceptibility. There's near universal agreement on that point. Uh, so the another way to put this, and, and, and here I'm thinking of the work of the economist Peter Reuter and others, um, what you want to do is is to discourage the commercialization of vice either through regulation or through taxation, not necessarily through prohibition, although there, there may be some things that are so intrinsically dangerous, like methamphetamine or combustible cigarettes, that, that ultimately you want, you want them off the market. But, but if you can discourage their commercialization, then you can go a long way toward achieving your public health objectives. Um, on the other hand, it's clear that that governments can can make a lot of money by permitting the commercialization of these substances. And, and, and some of that money comes back to politicians in the form of contributions, political contributions from people like Sheldon Adelson, who's what? Who's one of the biggest casino magnets in the world. Mm. And, and also an extremely generous contributor in, in both American and, and Israeli politics. 
so there's there's an element of of corruption that that's entered into the story but but that's that's true of a lot of things and 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 corrupt influences don't always win so anyway if 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 you can fight back if you can do what the victorians did which is to recognize the inevitability of vice and and addiction and yet say we're going to we're going to marginalize these things. We're not going to permit these things to become commercially mainstream. Um, that is a viable public health strategy, in terms, of, at least in terms of reducing prevalence. Of course, when you marginalize something or you create a, a black market or a gray market, uh, the reality is that the, the behavior of those individuals who are caught up in addiction will be on average worse for each individual. They'll have more problems, but there will be fewer people who are addicted overall. So that, that's the essential trade-off. And I, I'm afraid that in making decisions about that trade-off, we've moved in the direction of accepting mass addiction. And that's a big mistake because of the morbidity and mortality that ensues. It's a real great read. I would also say, and I'm pausing here because I want to pick my words carefully, but it is startling and eye-opening. And I think that it, it should make a mark, not only with the American public, but um, more generally. And you've talked a little bit about this debate um, with your press about the title. Um, I have to ask about... Uh, during the writing process, what hit the cutting room floor? Were there parts that you had to leave out? Are there parts that uh, you're pursuing uh, in, in, in other projects? Again, I, I, this may surprise you, but the answer is nothing. <laughs> I, 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 um, uh, I've been around the block, and I signed a contract to deliver a manuscript of 100,000 words, and I did. And the book is 100,000 <laughs> words. Uh, there, there were a few extraneous anecdotes uh, and unnecessary details. Um, but my, my editor, uh, my manuscript editor at Harvard, Louise Robbins, commented that I have a very telegraphic style. She said that I was one of the very few writers whose sentences she'd had to extend. I, I, I think she probably meant academic writers, but she was too polite to say that. But uh, basically, even though I reframed a few things and, and, and trimmed a few details, it, it, the book is as I wrote it. Being around the block is a good thing, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, and I suspect that listeners, um, maybe historians or, or just writers of fiction and non-fiction um, more broadly would kick my butt if I didn't ask you a couple questions uh, about the writing process because you've been so prolific and because it is so accessible. So I'm going to just do that, Dave, and I hope you don't mind. Um, That's all right. Yeah. And I mean, one of the questions I think that younger people, younger scholars and, and writers who are getting into the game often wonder about is the scheduling. Like, like what kind of work schedule they keep? What should they do? And so, I mean, what, what do you do? Well, I write from um, 9 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and then I knock off and go to the gym. Now, that's yeah. when I have a sabbatical or it's the summer. Uh, like other academics, uh, it's teaching first, and I write when I can during the, the regular semester. That's just that's the way it is. I will say I've been very fortunate in receiving fellowship support for, for my work. 
and I, I did have an NEH Public Scholar Award to help me in the writing of this book. And I also um, uh, had a Douglas Southall Freeman professorship at the University of Richmond. So long story short, I had a year and a half of uninterrupted time on which to, to, during which I could concentrate on the manuscript. That, that helped a lot. Um, but there's, there's, no, there's no special magic or trick to this. You just need to free up the time in order to be able to concentrate on a, on a project of this scope and complexity. Well, that's just it. It's, it's intricate and it's complex. Um, and I suspect, again, that uh, if you hadn't been around the block, that you might get reader's block or writer's block, I should say. And so have you struggled with writer's block in the past? And if so, how have you overcome it? Uh, no, I, I'm not sure why. I think it, it may have something to do with the fact that almost all of my books have, have been based on proposals. So I'll put together a 25 or 30 page proposal. I'll send it off to the press. And so I know where I'm going. I have a roadmap. And I, I also, for 50 years, have been a long distance runner. And so one of the things, the lessons, the life lessons of running is that if you just keep going, you'll eventually get to the finish line. So basically, I know that if I can uh, get through three or four good, well-sourced paragraphs in a day, that's a good day's work. And if I just keep advancing at that pace, I'll, I'll get to where I need to be at the end. So I, I've been fortunate, very fortunate. Although I will say that the, the problem, the block, it has not been in the writing. It's been in the conceptual stage. I found it enormously difficult to, to hold those three things, pleasure, vice, and addiction, in my mind and think about them in world historical terms and figure out how they were intertwined and how that could become the basis for a book that would basically go from the Neolithic down to the age of limbic capitalism that, that we now inhabit. That was hard. What's next for you, David, whether or not it's running or whether or not it's writing, what's, what's in the future for you? Well, as I mentioned, my, the first book that I published was called Dark Paradise, A History of Opiate Addiction in America. That was published uh, by Harvard University Press back in 1982. And I was fortunate in, insofar as I was able to revise that and, and issue that in a new edition, which was published in 2001. Uh, and essentially what I did is the first edition went up to 1940. Uh, the second ed edition was World War II and beyond. And it took the story uh, up to the mid-1990s. And, and by the mid-1990s, the story of opiate addiction in the United States was largely the story of heroin addiction. So, I mean, there, there, there were some other aspects of the problem, but, it, but fundamentally from, from World War II to the present, it's, it's been about heroin and heroin trafficking and heroin control and heroin epidemics. Um, and so I managed to get that story down to about the mid-1990s and sort of patted myself on the head and said, okay, good job, you've updated the book, and, and finally appeared in print in 2001. And almost immediately I start reading stories in the newspaper about Oxycontin and Oxycontin addiction and, and prescription opioid abuse. And 
I look at I look at those stories and I think, well, you know, where's that coming from? That's that's chapter one and two. That's that's the history of a hundred years ago. There's there's been a recurrence of this pattern of medical addiction that that, that caught me off guard. Uh, and of course, uh, that's grown and grown, and it's become a major public health issue in the United States. So obviously, I need to do a third edition of the book, and I need to uh, I need to write a history of opiate and opioid addiction in the United States, if you see what I mean. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, people used to talk about narcotics as opiates. Now, in an age of synthetic drugs, they mainly use the term opioid. So I, I need to, to describe this, this whole new phase of prescription opioid abuse, and I, I hope to be able to do that. I cannot wait, actually, to read that book. And uh, so I would say to all the listeners here that you should go out and get uh, David Court Wright's The Age of Addiction, How Bad Habits Became Big Business. It's available at Harvard University Press website, as well as Amazon and all fine book retailers. David is going to be doing uh, a number of uh, media in the future uh, as the book is launched, and uh, you can follow along on his website. And uh, David, I just want to say thanks again for doing this. Oh, you're quite welcome.